right, so hello everyone and welcome back to our podcast, Raya Affairs. Before getting into this very special episode of our Climate Leaders 101 series, I wanted to introduce myself as your host for today. My name is Marina de Volto Pimenta and I am the Raya Project Development Coordinator. I've been hosting Raya Affairs since the very beginning, so since episode one, as well as working with my team to bring the latest Raya content to our listeners. So as I've mentioned, we are back with our Climate Leaders 101 series. And this is a five episode series uh, of which we began last year, of which we will be analyzing the stakes, policies and personalities of climate leaders around the world. This year, we have individuals ranging from Brazil to Kenya to Spain and many more. As per usual, I'll give you the brief overview of Raya. Raya is an international uh, affairs think tank led by young professionals that will translate this abstract world of international affairs by simplifying rather than generalizing. Raya is where you can come to learn about the stories and the worries of political leaders, the behind the scenes of their decision making, and how politics will impact and change your life as well. So this is Raya Affairs filling you in wherever you are. We would also like to make it clear that any expressed opinions in this episode are welcome, even though they are not a direct reflection of Raya, as Raya specializes in unbiased writing and analysis. So over the next following weeks, we'll be dedicating all our episodes on Raya Affairs to the climate leaders in a collaboration between Raya, IE University, and the IE School of Politics, Economics, and Global Affairs. Over this summer, 10 IE students underwent a couple weeks of RIA training to familiarize themselves with the RIA methodology, where they placed the individual decision maker at the center of their analysis. These same students also attended other research-related seminars held by RIA, featuring alumni working in the EU climate policy at the EU Commission, working with climate migration, and even an external youth climate activist. Given all of this, Each of the five climate leader reports will be published once a week on the RIA website. As per usual, um, we just want to introduce our writers for today and kick off this episode. So I would like to introduce Ruby Garchara and Chiara Casina, our first two summer program students who have analyzed Dr. William Ruto, the current president of Kenya. So hi, Ruby and Chiara, and welcome to Raya Affairs. Why don't both of you tell everyone about yourselves, so where you're from, what do you do, and perhaps where you got to the role that you have today at Raya. Hi, listeners. I'm Ruby Gashara, and uh, I'm thrilled to be a part of this podcast today. So thank you, Marina, for having me. Uh, so I have just completed my first year of international relations at IE University, I'm proudly Kenyan, and uh, my heritage has been significant in shaping my passion for international affairs. Now, the Raya Summer Internship Program was a very insightful two-month journey and uh, has been a great opportunity for me to apply my academic knowledge practically. So I became aware of the Raya Internship Program through my university's network, and uh, I was compelled to apply to achieve better research skills and to be a contributor to an analysis of world leaders and the position that uh, young people can play in international affairs. All right, perfect, Ruby. Um, Chiara, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself as well? 
Hello everyone, uh, thank you Marina for having me as well. My name is Chiara Casina and I study Business Administration and International Relations at IE University. I'm from Switzerland and Argentina, but I also have three other nationalities. And with regards to how I got to the role of research intern at Raya, I would start with my experience in the sustainability and research sector. I first began by being a tourism promoter for Switzerland Tourism, where I presented sustainable travel in Switzerland. And then I was an intern in the IE Policy Lab, where I worked with the United Nations Economic and Social Commission for Western Asia and conducted an analysis of the policy directions Arab countries take to achieve the SDGs. And I think that it was through these experiences that I found my interest in sustainability and the RIA program was the perfect opportunity to grow and hone both my skills and my knowledge. And I'm really excited to be taking part in this podcast today. Thank you. Um, so now this next question, I tend to ask all our guests who come on to the podcast. So all our RIA writers that come on, because I know that, as you both just mentioned, you're very passionate about international relations, sustainability and whatnot. But also because everyone's answers never fail to surprise or amaze. So, Ruby, let's start with you. What leader, dead or alive, who has impacted the world would you like the opportunity to have a conversation with if you could? Uh, well, uh, I would say Kwame Nkrumah. So that is the first president of Ghana because I'm intrigued by how he managed to lead the whole of the Gold Coast to independence from Britain and uh, how he became an inspiration to other African independence movements and um I'd probably like to know what sourced his vision for change on a more personal level. All right. And what about you, Kiara? What leader would you like to meet if given the opportunity to? I would have to say uh, Nikita Khrushchev, who was the first security secretary of the Soviet Union from 1953 to 1964. And the Potemkin facade that he created with regards to nuclear arms greatly interests me, as does the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Perfect. So very interesting answers from both of you. Let's start off now the actual episode with some introduction to the leader at the center of today's discussion, Dr. William Ruto. So Ruby, what are Ruto's political roots and where does he stand today? Uh, so today, William Ruto is Kenya's fifth president since gaining independence in 1963, uh, marking 60 years of independence. So Ruto previously served as deputy president of Kenya from 2013 to 2022 under the former president Uhuru Kenyatta and is currently the party leader of the United Democratic Alliance. So regarding his earlier political roots, he was the minister of agriculture and uh, higher education under former president Mwaki Baki's government, where he started to exercise his environmental policy. All right. And as a quick follow up, Kiara, in the analysis of which I was able to have a chance to read, you both described Ruto as breaking away from past ideology and establishing himself in the polit in the Kenyan political environment as an outsider. How did he exactly build up this political character and did this help him win the Kenyan presidential elections uh, back in 2022? So Ruto established himself as an outsider in two main ways, politically and socially. Politically, during the most recent election in 2022, Ruto declared that he was no longer involved with the Kenyatta Odinga political establishment and advocated that he was the change the country needed. 
And for background information, the Kenyatta and Odinga dynasties were previously political rivals. However, in 2018, Kenya's then-current president, Uhuru Kenyatta, and the leader of the main opposition, Raila Odinga, formed a political pact to work together, casting Ruto as a political outsider. Socially, he established himself as an outsider by leveraging his roots and promulgating his journey from village boy to president. And this helped him win the Kenyan presidential elections because under his hustler populism narrative, he transformed himself into the champion of the poor and voiceless, crusading against the dynasties he had so loyally served in the past, which then helped him win the elections. All right, thank you. So as this podcast progresses, we are here, you know, to discuss why you think Ruto embodies, or perhaps not, a climate leader. So can we begin then uh, by understanding where Ruto's climate journey and interest in enacting these climate change policies began? Yes, so the start of Ruto's interest in climate change policies and uh, conservation lay in his educational background, where he obtained his early and his higher education in Kenya. And uh, he studied an undergraduate degree in botany and zoology at the University of Nairobi. And uh, he later obtained a Master of Science and a PhD in plant ecology. So from our research, his interest in enacting climate change policies have been to use it as both a development tool to improve the life the lives of Ken- uh, climate change affected Kenyans through international investment, as well as a recognition tool to try and sustain popularity in the next elections. Okay, so thank you, Ruby. Based on this previous question and your answer, Ruby, um, Kiara, would it be fair to say that then the biggest contributing factor or motivation behind Ruto's interest to enact climate change policies is precisely this worry of what will happen to Kenya in the future? Well, I think Ruto's motivations can be divided into three separate sections. The first one being his desire to fight for Kenya in international climate change talks, where he argues that although Kenya emits less than 0.1% of global greenhouse gas emissions, that it faces some of the worst environmental disasters. The second section would be his desire to gain popularity ahead of the next elections. And last but not least, what I would argue is the biggest contributing factor behind Ruto's motivation to enact these climate change policies is his ambition to put both himself and Kenya on the international spotlight with the ultimate goal of incentivizing outside nations to invest in Kenya and its climate change initiatives. In simpler terms, William Ruto's biggest motivation is arguably international investment. All right, thank you. And as you just mentioned, right, it's not shocking that those countries which contribute the least to climate change, Kenya emitting less than 0.1% of global gas emissions, are those countries who suffer the effects the most as well. And Kenya is facing multiple issues related to climate change. So Ruby, could you please summarize Kenya's biggest environmental challenges and one or two facts that maybe we should know regarding each of the environmental issues? Yes, so we have based our research on four major environmental challenges that Kenya faces, of which are flooding, overpopulation, desertification, and pollution. So the current East Africa drought has majorly contributed to desertification in Kenya, and uh, effects ranging from food insecurity to uh, severe economic impacts like low supply and uh, business failure exist. 
on an agricultural level, the, they led to water shortages, increased temperatures, and the reduction of vegetation and its nutritive qualities. Uh, regarding pollution in Kenya, uh, as in other parts of the world, uh, majorly comes in four forms. So we looked at domestic and industrial use in terms of waste disposal and through water and in air. So it's important to note that uh, Kenya has the largest slum in Africa, Kibera, where 58% of Nairobi's population lives. So the slum faces a critical uh, risk of household air pollution, HAP, and uh, Ruto's government contribution has been aimed at uh, trying to train health workers on how to properly address the burden of disease from air pollution caused domestically, so through household cooking, and to provide policy support to drive the transition to clean fuels in households and in institutions. Uh, with reference to industrial waste pollution, there's a lack of proper air quality management systems, as in many developing countries. Uh, the largest lake in Africa, Lake Victoria shoreline, which is shared between three countries, Kenya, Tanzania, and Uganda, uh, suffers from chemical waste and microplastics, which negatively affects the fishing industry. Uh, overpopulation is also an issue where there's been a particular strain on agricultural land, where now issues like deforestation, soil erosion, and uh, diminishing yields have occurred, which has threatened food supply and is being reinforced by the existing East Africa drought crisis, uh, also leading to droughts in West Africa and in other parts of Africa. Uh, flooding also leads to internal displacement and uh, climate migration throughout Kenya. Uh, Nairobi is particularly prone to flash flooding due to poor drainage, lack of infrastructure, proper infrastructure, and inefficient garbage collection. So from this, it's clear that uh, severe environmental challenges in Kenya do exist. Uh, however, governments over the years have been contributing to efficiency and sustainability to try to uh, manage these effects on Kenyans. Thank you, Ruby, for that very encompassing analysis of the environmental issues that Kenya faces. Before we move on to the actual policies that tackle these specific issues, I wanted to take two steps back in our discussion and return to Ruto as a climate leader. We now know of Kenya's challenges and we know of Ruto's motivations. So when we combine both of these points of analysis, how did this culminate in the COP27 held in November of last year? In other words, how did Ruto portray himself as a climate leader and how did he bring visibility to the African groups that were also present at COP27? So Ruto actually presented two key speeches at COP27, one to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change on behalf of both Kenya and the African group, which is a group that represents 54 United Nations member states from the African continent. And his second speech was at the launch of the African Carbon Markets Initiative. It was these two speeches that gave him the platform to argue for the injustices that the African continent and Kenya was and is facing due to climate change. He brought to light the issues Africa is facing from climate change induced disasters and referenced the consequences of such disasters on Kenya's budget allocation decisions and the trade-offs the government was forced to make. And in doing so, he commented on the fact that these consequences of environmental disasters 
are primarily caused by nations outside of the African continent, emphasizing the unjust nature of the situation. Moreover, following the Russian invasion of Ukraine, European nations and fossil fuel firms began to do a dash for gas across Africa, looking for oil and gas projects to invest in. Therefore, the context in which Ruto presented these speeches was incredibly important. His speeches at COP27 provided him with a clear opportunity to hold a firm stance against what he saw as the unethical actions European nations and fossil fuel firms were taking. The COP conference also allowed Ruto to promote international investment in Kenyan climate projects. He called for developed countries to decarbonize their production by directing industrial investments to Africa and making use of clean energy to manufacture for the world. He also used his public platform to showcase the opportunities Africa could provide as an investment, which could be in regards to green energy, smart agriculture, and decarbonized manufacturing. And so the two speeches that he presented at COP27, um, he was able to use them to bring visibility to Kenya and African continent with regards to climate change. Thank you, Kiara. And it's interesting, this last point you point you pointed out, um, bringing right international spotlight with the goal of incentivizing other nations to invest in Kenya or in other African nations. And that's, as you mentioned in one of our previous questions, one of the biggest uh, motivating factors for Ruto. But Ruby, I also read in your analysis that Ruto was very critical of the effectiveness of the COP summits. So does your analysis explain why this is? Uh, so yes. So although Kenya contributes uh, minimally to global greenhouse gas emissions, uh, they still face a brunt of the devastating environmental impacts of climate change. And as such, uh, Ruto believes that climate change-related talks are inherently unfair, as both Kenya and Africa as a whole are treated as beggars that he once explained. But uh, despite this, Ruto is still willing to put great efforts in the next COP summits to help make um, arrangements to counter climate change and to create more sustainable policies. Uh, but he, he definitely hopes that uh, COP28 in Dubai later this year will be the last summit. Yeah. Thank you both for answering our questions. Let's now move on to the last part of this episode, which is looking right at the policies themselves. Ruby, what would you say is the most innovative climate policy you believe Ruto has enacted or plans to enact? And what does this policy entail? Uh, I would say the climate plan to ramp up clean energy and phase out fossil fuels for electricity by 2030. So the project aims at uh, making a full transition from uh, past unsustainable fuel production and uh, its usage to now the production of electricity entirely generated by solar, wind, geothermal energy by 2030. And uh, it also emphasizes on the importance of collaboration among African leaders. And uh, Ruto's role as the chair of the Committee of African Heads of State on Climate Change, which is the highest decision-making body in Africa on climate issues, has uh, involved a collaboration structure with African leaders where he has a strong stance on Africa, having the capacity of growing industries as a clean, green factory of the world. Thank you. And so far, could you tell us what this policy's impact has been, looking perhaps beyond the specific issue that it addresses in Kenya, 
but how it extends to address the climate crisis globally as well. Uh, so yes, as a whole, Ruto's goal of uh, ramping up clean energy and phasing out fossil fuels does not actually address global warming as a whole, but it does play a large role in contributing to climate change policy. So it's to argue that uh, a combination of a variety of policies must be simultaneously implemented to address global warming with now high levels, impact levels to uh, satisfy the different challenges caused by climate change. And uh, Ruto confidently argues that uh, Africa's renewable energy potential is more than 50 times the world's cumulative demand by 2030. So the aim itself is attainable and will, to a large extent, address global warming as a whole. Wow, that's uh, pretty amazing. Um, thank you. And Chiara, I'm particularly interested in one other policy that Ruto has put forth while I was reading uh, your analysis. Could you please tell us uh, what the African Carbon Market Initiative is and what Ruto has proposed? And if you could explain it to those of us who really know nothing about the carbon credit production mechanism, please. Yes, so to begin, carbon credits are certificates that represent certain quantities of greenhouse gas emissions that have been kept out of the air. And voluntary carbon markets allow companies to use carbon credits to offset emissions they would otherwise not be able to get rid of. In this sense, voluntary carbon credits allow for the private financing of international climate action projects, such as in Kenya. And the African Carbon Markets Initiative aims to support the growth of carbon credit production, create jobs in Africa, and promote Africa's energy transition as a whole. It aims to do this by producing 300 million carbon credits annually, unlocking 6 billion in revenue, and supporting 30 million jobs by 2030. And as a member of a group of sponsors that launched the African Carbon Markets Initiative, Ruto secured Kenya's participation in the ACMI and allowed it to access additional funding for internal climate change projects, therefore increasing international investments in Kenya, one of Ruto's main motivations. So as you just mentioned, Chiara, the goals are pretty impressive. How successful or effective would you say that Ruto's initiative has been in achieving these domestic goals? Obviously as well, there are there global goals that it might help achieve? So although the policy has been in place for minimal time, it has already had a large domestic impact. For example, in June of 2023, Kenya hosted a carbon credits auction where companies from Saudi Arabia bought more than 2.2 million tons of carbon credits. Moreover, as an extension of the African Carbon Markets Initiative, Kenya and the UK government introduced green investment projects to spur up climate finance and largely improve the sustainability in operation of the Kenyan economy. And if we look at this from a long-term perspective, Ruto has stated that he wants Kenya's next significant export to be carbon credits, and the African carbon market initiative would be really helpful in making this happen. Thank you. So girls, based on this whole discussion that we've had this far, and as well, all the time you've taken to research your climate leader, would you say point blank that Dr. William Ruto embodies and is a climate leader? Each one of you can take your time to answer. Um, but Chiara, why don't you go ahead and start us off regarding what you believe um, with this question? I would say that to put it simply, 
Yes, William Ruto is a climate leader because he has spearheaded Kenya's insurgence as a global climate change conscious country. He's been incredibly influential as an African leader on the global stage, fighting for both Kenya and Africa's positions as global precedents. He also wants to rewrite the current narrative that countries who cause the least pollution are the ones that face the most catastrophic consequences. I would also say he's a climate leader because he has been the driving force behind several climate change adaptation and mitigation initiatives in Kenya. Some of these have been mentioned. These include the African Carbon Markets Initiative, his climate plan to phase out fossil fuels for electricity by 2030, the Fertilizer Subsidy Program, and the National Tree Planting Initiative. And William Ruto has clearly established himself as both a domestic and international climate leader since his inauguration as president. His avant-garde climate policies have influenced Kenya's position as a climate leader and conclusively led to an increase in international investment in the country, which is his, his ultimate goal. However, it has to be recognized that Ruto has only served as president for less than one year, and therefore the policies he has enacted are nascent and the full scale of their impact is yet to be properly assessed. But on the general scale, yes, I would say William Ruto is a climate leader. And what about you, Ruby? Uh, so our research has proven that Ruto has definitely made uh, significant efforts to tackle climate change. And uh, as chair of the African Heads of State for Climate Change, uh, Ruto plays a large part in driving this change in Africa. And uh, as Kiara has mentioned, uh, his establishment as a climate leader has been clear since his inauguration in November 2022. All right, thank you both for elaborating. It seems that we have come to the end of our main discussion. And before moving on to our last segment of the episode, I wanted to know what you both believe are the three top takeaways that our listeners should have in the process of research and analysis. More specifically, can you guys relate to what you have learned in your own process of researching and analyzing an individual and the way that they make their decisions? You can relate it back to this experience that you've had with climate leader research. So I think the first takeaway our listeners should have in the process of research and analysis is contextual understanding, because a leader's decisions and motivations don't all stem from one context. For example, I'll put this in William Ruto's context. William Ruto's motivations span across economic, personal interest, cultural, and social contexts. The second takeaway I would say that the listeners have to take is that you have to take into account multiple perspectives because different sources will tell you different interpretations of an event. Let's take the African Carbon Markets Initiative as an example. Some sources said that Ruto inaugurated it, while others said he presented a speech in favor of it as he had signed on Kenya as a member. And you will come to realize that the more you read about a topic, the more interpretations you will find, and it really is up to you to research and determine the events that occurred in a non-biased way. Lastly, I would say the importance of editing. As writers, we have written the work, we've read it over dozens, even hundreds of times, and eventually that warps the way we see our work and it's sometimes hard to see what needs to be changed. And I want to use this last takeaway as an opportunity to thank our editor, Michael, for his guidance and the way he's really improved our quality of work. And he's shown us the importance of editing and research and analysis. Thank you. What about you, Ruby? What are your top three takeaways? 
Uh, so firstly, I would say, take your time to understand your research. So the program was structured around having enough time to compile research and structure the report. And uh, it may not always be easy to socially understand the background of a country you're not originally from. I know Chiara would agree on this. But uh, with enough time and good collaboration, it's definitely possible. Uh, my second takeaway would be, uh, as a young person, uh, analysis of various leaders and uh, global affairs will become increasingly important in your career as you try to develop different skills that will probably properly equip you with what's needed to be a holistic individual. And uh, lastly, I would say the importance of methodology and structure and uh, how to interpret data. So given that I am Kenyan and our profile has been on a Kenyan leader, uh, I have personally gone through unconscious bias awareness training to help create this report to avoid any biases. Okay, so now we will move on to a new segment on this podcast that we like to call Two Sides, One Mic. For around the next five minutes, we will read out some opposing statements made about the leader at hand, and our writers will discuss how these statements connect to the research that they have done on their climate leader. Our goal is to look at what is currently being said by other individuals about the climate leader or their policies and have our writers debate or comment on it using what they have found in their analysis. So Dr. William Ruto is no stranger to controversy at the national and international level. Girls, you mentioned in your report that Ruto has been accused by the International Criminal Court, or ICC, of his crimes against humanity for being involved in electoral violence in 2007. He has also been accused by the National Land Commission in 2019 of illegally purchasing 900 acres of public land to build a hotel. On the one hand, an opinion poll released by a pollster in 2018 said that one in three Kenyans, so 33%, perceived Ruto as the most corrupt public official. On the other side of the mic, however, Ruto has defended his actions. And when asked about the outcome of this same public opinion poll that I just mentioned in 2018, Ruto responded by stating that when his competitors are through with the headlines, and the corruption propaganda, he invites them to meet him, and I quote, at the development arena of the people of Kenya, because that is where the real contest is. So he connects it back to the important matters of which we have discussed here, such as connecting the Kenyan people to electricity and water and continuing his development projects. So our question really is, how has Ruto's public image been constrained by his controversies? Wouldn't you agree Ruby, Chiara, that a climate leader must set an example to the public and Ruto has somewhat failed to mitigate this impact of his own actions? Or would you say that he's been able to thwart off any efforts to dismiss him as a serious anti-corruption politician? I think that Ruto's public image has not been as constrained as one would expect, given the number of controversies he has been in. And I think that comes from the way Ruto has chosen to deal with these controversies. Instead of admitting he has done anything wrongful, he denies all charges. 
and in the case of the Ipsos poll, he changed the perspective by saying the poll was propaganda. He therefore brought down the value of the poll's results by saying that while the opposition was trying to publicly frame him as corrupt, he was too busy trying to make Kenya a better country for its people. And I think that it is in this way that his ability to dismiss corruption claims allows his public image to not be very constrained by his past controversies. Thank you, Chiara. And what about you, Ruby? Would you agree, especially given that you have a lot of access to Kenyan media and you follow Kenyan politics? So these are very interesting questions. So uh, from politics to the public image Ruto has in Kenya, uh, I would say that his winning leverage point has been on his hustler narrative. So psychologically, this narrative of uh, hustlers, the lower class in Kenya versus dynasties has been very influential and can often be described as a propaganda technique to try clear out his previous accusations and crimes. But uh, globally, his strong interest in climate change can be perceived as clearing his name from his past. So there we have it, two sides, one mic, with both of the girls commenting on the statements that we have read out loud. As this episode comes to an end, I wanted to briefly summarize what we have come to learn today. William Ruto, as the fifth Kenyan president, has been interested in climate change policies in order to, one, safeguard the future of his country, two, bring action and international spotlight and international investment to Kenya, and three, to change the manner in which climate change talks are held, particularly when it concerns other African nations. His defining moment was at the COP27 last year, and since assuming presidency a year ago as well, he has brought forth a number of climate action policies to tackle four main environmental issues of Kenya, two of those policies of which we have discussed in depth. So it's been a pleasure to have Ruby and Chiara on Raya Affairs today, going in-depth into Dr. William Ruto. Thank you both for taking the time to come to discuss with us your findings and to finalize your summer program with Raya. Congratulations for all your work. It's been a pleasure discussing William Ruto's climate leadership and thank you so much for this opportunity. It's truly been an amazing experience and I hope to have the opportunity to return as a guest on this podcast in the future. Yes, thank you so much for having us. It has definitely been interesting to reflect back on our research and to uh, further explain our findings on this podcast. Thank you. And for those of you who have enjoyed our discussion today and you want to read, actually, I urge you to read Ruby and Chiara's report on Ruto, click the link in the episode description or find their research on riagroup.org. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram, raya.now, as the Climate Leader Reports will also be published. Um, The podcast episodes will be published there, so you'll have all the access to the summer program content. It was a pleasure hosting this discussion today. Goodbye, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Have a great day in your sphere of influence. (laughs) 